Well, it's a privilege and a joy and an honor to welcome you to Graceway Baptist Church in our Sunday School Hour. This is the lesson that we are going to um, present on February the 5th of 2023. And it's again out of uh, Haggai talking to the people that had come back to Israel after Daniel. Uh, he's off of the scene now, but you remember at the last part of the life of Daniel, it was about the remnant returning. And remember, not everybody who was in captivity in Babylon went back to Israel. Just a small group of people did. A lot of people stayed behind. And of the people that were back there in the remnant of Israel, think about how old some of them were. I mean, some of them remembered the former temple, which had been destroyed 70 years before. Uh, I was thinking at one point, when do my clearest memories uh, come about? There was uh, something that happened when I was about two, and it was something that I kind of vaguely remembered, and I asked my mom and dad about it, and then they filled in all the gaps and, and told me where we were and who the person was. But it was uh, really, really fuzzy for me, but, uh, you know, going back to two, I suppose it would be. When I was three years old, we were living in Fort Worth, Texas, and that's the year that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Now, I don't remember anything about that event, obviously, but I do remember a lot of things that were on TV about it and people talking about it. And you can imagine being so close to Dallas, it, it dominated everything. And uh, I remember thinking that whenever I heard the Star Spangled Banner, I thought another president had died. Yeah, so it's kind of sketchy. I remember it, but I really don't remember it, okay? Uh, when you start getting up to kindergarten, man, I remember a lot about that. I remember my first day of school. I remember uh, some of the kids that were in my classroom. I remember my teacher's name was Mrs. Cox. And I remember uh, a kid, uh, his name was Marty, but he said his R is funny. So we laughed at him and he, because he was said it was Marty or Marty, Marty or something like that. And I remember somebody pulled his chair out from under him and he busted his mouth on the table and uh, lost his front teeth and, you know, things like that. So how old, if the temple had been destroyed 70 years before, how old would you have to be to actually remember the temple in its former glory? Probably at least 75 plus, you know? And so um, this is uh, the, the life of the people that are after that. There are not very many left who can remember the old temple in the old times. And uh, as we talked about last week, they would probably do like we do, kind of romanticize it. And oh, that was so great. And oh, all of the money and the people and the splendor of the temple, kind of forgetting that it was also the time where, uh, you know, God clobbered them because they wouldn't obey him. And sometimes I think we forget that the fruit of this generation is, uh, pardon me, this generation and its problems is the fruit of previous generations, right? And so we're still talking about all of that. And so we've entitled the lesson, God's value system is not like ours. And that is so true. Uh, the old joke is a man died and he took his gold with him and he got to heaven. And when he uh, uh, was in front of St. Peter, St. Peter said, 
you know, what you got in your suitcase there. And the man proudly said, this is all the gold that I've accumulated, millions of dollars. And Peter said, great, we've got a few potholes. We've been needing to patch some of this up. And, uh, you know, for what we value and go to war over and fight for, you know, heaven uses for pavement. God's value system is different. Corny joke, but good point. And uh, his ways are different than our ways. And that's the problem that we have so many times with God. I can't figure out his value system. I can't figure out his ways, his plan. And it causes me uh, great consternation, doesn't it you? I mean, at least at times, let's be honest. So we're in Haggai chapter two, verses six through nine. And it says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, parenthesis, it is a little while. At least it is from God's standpoint. Remember with him, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. He's above time and space. So that's his perspective. Long time for us, but not for him. And he says, uh, it is a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. I believe that's another name for Jesus Christ. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Okay. Now, how many temples were in Jerusalem? This kind of gives uh, people problems because when you talk about the temple in Jerusalem, you're not just talking about one. Now, depending on how you count them and which ones you count as actual temples or remodels or something like that, um, well, let's talk about it. First of all, you have the tabernacle. That's a portable temple. It's not quite the same, and they wouldn't, the Jews wouldn't really call it a temple proper, but in a sense, it was. It was the mobile temple, the portable temple that they had uh, through the wilderness, and it was there for a while. And then there's Solomon's temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world, just tremendous. People would travel from all over the world to see that particular temple. There was, uh, that was destroyed in AD 70. And then there is Zerubbabel's temple. That's the one that we're talking about in this particular passage. And then um, you remember they said, oh, this is nothing. It's just a little punk thing. And the old people were comparing it to Solomon's temple. And the young people were probably discouraged by all of that. Well, Herod the Great, the one that uh, tried to kill Jesus when he was uh, just a baby, Herod the Great, as a gift to the Jews and to try to solidify his rulership over them, because he really wasn't the king of the Jews legitimately. He was a puppet of Rome. And so he uh, remodels Zerubbabel's temple, and some say rebuilt it, but it made it much bigger and much more fancy and all of that. So there's Herod's temple, which was a remodel and expansion of Zerubbabel's temple. 
and uh, it was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. So you've got in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar destroys Solomon's temple, then there's Zerubbabel's temple, and then Herod's temple, and then it gets destroyed as well. There is no temple in Jerusalem at this particular time. There's a mosque over where the temple should be. And uh, this is what kind of causes a little bit of question about how God's going to do this because it's prophesied that there will be a future temple that's going to be built by the Antichrist. Apparently the Antichrist after the rapture during the tribulation is going to make a deal with the Jews and he's going to build them a temple and then he's going to double cross them by setting up his image in the Holy of Holies. And that's uh, alluded to in 2 Thessalonians 2 three through four, let no one deceive you in any way for that day, meaning the tribulation will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, that's the antichrist is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that Here's where we get the inference. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay? So, uh, well, if the rapture took place today, where would he do that? And how does he negotiate with the Muslims to remove the uh, Dome of the Rock? And why is that important to the Muslims there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? Because that's where they believe Muhammad ascended into heaven, if I'm not mistaken. You can check me out on that. Google it. And so uh, to try to get rid of the mosque of Omar and to rebuild the temple, that's going to take some doing. And apparently the Antichrist is going to get it done and solve the Middle East peace, uh, uh, Middle East crisis and bring peace there. And people are going to, especially the Jews, are going to say this man must be of God and must be the Messiah. I found um, a quote that says a representative of the Temple Institute told us in 2010 that they are looking for a temple builder. We are waiting for a Messiah in Jewish tradition. We believe that in every generation there is someone who could be or can be the Messiah. The question is, who will he be? And the answer is only someone who does specific things can be called the Messiah. Now, these are Jews that are writing this, unsaved Jews. The one who brings Israel back to Israel and the one who builds the temple again. Now, if that's current thinking in Israel among the Jews, then I would assume that would be the thinking during the tribulation. So when the Antichrist rebuilds the temple, they automatically go, oh, this must be of God. And of course, he double crosses them. Um, by this tradition, it is simple to see how the Antichrist will be looked upon as the Messiah. He will come as a peacemaker and by his satanic power, he will make a way for the Jewish temple to be rebuilt in spite of Muslim animosity. And that's from way of life literature. Okay. So something's going to happen and there's going to be another temple. It will be rebuilt and the Antichrist will put his statue, his image in the Holy of Holies. And that's when the Jews are going to know they better run for their lives because they've been had. 
Well, there's also going to be a millennial temple after the Lord comes back and when he's ruling and reigning on the throne of Jerusalem. Ezekiel 43, 6 and 7 says, While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. That's a vision. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. So the Lord Jesus, when he rules and reigns during the millennial thousand year reign on earth, he's going to reign from a new temple, a holy consecrated temple where it's actually fulfilling its purpose. Okay. So how many temples have there been? It depends on how you count it, but there's been a lot. Now, secondly, we're going to uh, talk about the promise of glory because the Lord of hosts says that he is going to shake heaven and earth. It's going to be a cataclysmic um, uh, event that takes place both on earth and in the heavens. Um, probably it's the kind of thing you'll be able to see and feel, probably some earthquakes and things like that that are involved in it. And he said, and it's going to shake up the nations. Now that's going to be important because they are going to have to come and surrender to the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't be on their own anymore. All the world is going to be ruled by the Christ. And so they're going to come to the desire of nations. That's Jesus. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the shakeup that's going to take place is probably what is described in the book of Revelation in chapter 6 through 19. A lot of different things are going to happen and they're going to come. The nations are going to come because there's no place else to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and he is going to be enthroned and worshiped and, uh, and sought by these nations and it's going to happen from the temple. Now we've got a problem. Because this temple, Zerubbabel's temple, is the one that Herod the Great remodeled and expanded, and it does not exist any longer. It was destroyed in A.D. 70, and so any temple that, this, uh, that the Gentiles would come to in the uh, reign of Jesus Christ on earth has to be rebuilt, and yet the Lord said, I will do it in this place. And so you can take it a couple of ways. You can say that what the Lord meant was he was going to do it in that area, in that land, in that particular place where the temple stood. Or some say, well, he promised to do it right here in this temple. Well, I think the answer is in what John MacArthur says, the Jews viewed the temple in Jerusalem as one temple existing in different forms at different times. The rebuilt temple was considered a continuation of Solomon's temple. And so that kind of clears it up if that's the thinking. And uh, one, one place, one temple in different forms at different times. Okay. Number three, the promise of resources. Now God says in verse eight, the silver is mine and the gold is mine says the Lord of hosts. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that uh, don't think that this smaller temple is because of lack of resources because I own it all and I can provide it all at any given time. You know, that's good for us to remember. Sometimes we may go through as a church, we may have a, a financial downturn and we say, oh, how can we do what God wants us to do? And then we're reminded God owns it all. 
He'll provide everything we need to do what he wants us to do. And the same is true for your family. God is not poor and God does not have trouble coming up with the resources for you to do what he wants you to do. He just wants you to be obedient and he'll provide everything. I think it was uh, Corey Ten Boom when uh, she's, she's the lady from Holland who back in World War II, her family hid Jews in their house and then were arrested. And she and her family spent time in a concentration camp. And uh, she said one time, uh, when there was a need in the family or in the ministry or something, she goes, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And when the right time comes, he can sell one. Well, that's kind of a humorous way of understanding that God is not poor and God is not unable to finish what he starts or do what he wants done. He supplies it. He is our source of supply. And so if he doesn't supply it, then understand this, he doesn't require it. And that's the point he's trying to get across to these people. I am going to the glory of God is no problem. God can glorify himself and he can do it in a big temple. He can do it in a small temple. He can do it in a temple that is uh, contemporary or he can do it in a temple that is future. That's not really the issue. Now, when Solomon's temple was built, you remember David wanted to build it first. And uh, Nathan the prophet was sent by God to say, no, you need to uh, back off and let your son build it. He'll be a man of peace. You're a man of war. And uh, that could be because David had fought so much and had blood on his hands that God didn't want him to build it. Or it could be more practical than that. It could be that God is saying, you've got to fight to make sure the borders of Israel are secure and that the country is safe from invasion. You don't have time to build a temple. I tend to think it's that latter part that uh, David was told, don't build the temple, pay attention to what you need to do. Your nation is not secure yet. But under Solomon, it would be. And so David, because he couldn't build the temple, started gathering everything, the materials for Solomon. How much money did that cost and how much time did that take? And so Solomon, when he takes the throne, he's ready to go and build this magnificent temple for the Lord. And while they are dedicating the temple, the cloud of glory comes upon them so that the priests couldn't even minister. Do you know we don't have a story about that in Zerubbabel's temple, this second temple. And yet the Lord said that the glory is going to be better at the last than it was at the first. When we think about the Lord and he says, the gold and the silver are mine, I own it all. And so we don't give God anything. We just return to him what already belongs to him. And so uh, think about the widow's might and the attention of Jesus. It wasn't all of the big, big offerings of gold and silver and all of that that got the Lord's attention. But the widow puts in just her two mites and then that gets the Lord's attention. Why? Because God owns it all anyway. And God was impressed with the heart of the widow, not the amount of it, because God's not poor. He owns it all. And we find that in um, Luke chapter 21, 
verses 1 through 4, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, uh, put in all she had to live on. Okay? So God does not require more than he provides. And I think what he wants to get across to those people is you don't have resources granted. You're a small number. You don't have a lot of money. You don't have a lot of craftsmen. You're old and aging. You don't have very many young people, but you got all you need. Why? Because you have me, the Lord would say. And we need to remember that God provides what he requires. It's the way he's always done it. And the requirement of God for the temple was not beyond what he had given them. God owns everything and is not limited by us or our resources. Well, that had to have been encouraging to them because as they are struggling to do this and as they are hearing from some of the old people, oh, this is nothing compared to the way it used to be. And God just, it's, it's like he steps in and says, hey, excuse me, excuse me, I own everything and it's no problem if I wanted a temple that would replicate Solomon's temple or if I want, excuse me, I wanted something bigger, that would be absolutely no problem because I own it all. Get over yourself and quit thinking that it's all up to you that you're either really big dog daddy or sometimes we go the other way. Oh, we're just a bunch of nothings and nobodies. God can take care of us and he provides everything we need. And he certainly provides everything that he requires. So again, if he doesn't provide it, then he doesn't require it. Well, that's kind of nice. That, that kind of makes you give a sigh of relief that, oh, everything's okay. God doesn't expect me to be Billy Graham because he didn't um, uh, provide that for me. I don't have that capability. I don't have the, uh, the um, oh, the resources or the network is what I'm trying to get to that Billy Graham had. But I can do what I can do and you can do what you can do and we do what God provides. And if we're faithful in the little things, then perhaps he'll provide it later. But if not, We've done his will and uh, we can be happy in that. So number four is kind of the crux of this. Be faithful. Everything, big or small, fits into God's prophetic plan. So even these people and their meager and feeble efforts, God says, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. If you were to ask Zerubbabel or Joshua or any of the remnant, how do you think this fits in to God's plan compared to Solomon's temple? Probably before God said this, they would have said, oh, Ours is nothing compared to what we had before, but we blew it. Our ancestors did anyway. And it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and, well, it'll never be the same again. It'll never be the same again. You know how many times people say that? We think that because of our sin, 
our relationship with God, well, it'll never be the same again. You know, there was an apostle who thought that. The apostle Peter had been warned by Jesus, you're going to deny me three times. And, and you know, uh, I use the word cocky. That's kind of ironic when you think about the cock, the rooster crowing but um, in that story. But Peter, you know, I'll die for you. These others may deny you, but not me. You can count on me, Lord. Can't you just hear him kind of crowing all of that? Well, then what happened? He ended up denying the Lord three times. Then he hears the rooster crow. Then he sees Jesus looking at him sorrowfully. And then he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Boy, I reckon he did. He was warned and he still blew it. Well, Jesus is raised from the dead. Peter is, uh, has seen it. He's seen the empty tomb. But apparently in his heart, he's thinking, well, uh, he's alive, but our relationship will never be the same again. Kind of like these people were thinking. I've blown it too much. And we get an idea of that when he says, I go fishing in the King James. And he didn't just mean I'm going to go relax and, you know, sit by the creek bank and enjoy it and be Huck Finn or something like that. He meant I'm going back to the business of fishing. I'm done with all of this because I've blown it. It'll never be the same. I obviously don't understand this. I'm no good at it. And so he goes fishing. And uh, isn't it interesting that when they're out there on the boat and Peter is told it's the Lord, he jumps in the water, swims back, and the Lord doesn't have a whip, but the Lord has breakfast for him. And then fellowship is restored. And Peter is the guy that when he preaches on the day of Pentecost, some 40 days later, 3,000 souls are saved. Isn't that amazing? And there he is thinking it'll never be the same again. No, it won't. It was different. In fact, it was actually better, wasn't it? And God used Peter in ways that Peter never could fathom. And there he is, the guy that's always a loud mouth, the braggart who's always talking. In fact, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, every time Peter's mentioned, he's talking. And uh, he was so full of himself. Well, now he's thinking, I've blown it. It'll never be the same. Well, no but it was better. And that's the way it is we need to think about in our life. Sometimes our sin actually does limit opportunities and close doors. Sometimes it brings chastisement uh, upon, well, it always brings chastisement upon us, but that doesn't mean that our relationship with Christ has changed. Our sins were paid for by his death on the cross and paid for in full. And so what does this mean? Well, different sometimes can actually mean better. And that's what the Lord is getting across to these people. Just because it's smaller, just because you've sinned, just because it's not like it used to be, just because it's not the big deal that Solomon's temple was, just leave it to me. I'm going to glorify myself in this particular place. And you, you, you remnant, you people who are poor, you people who are old, you people who cannot pull off what Solomon did, don't worry about it because I've got you and I'm with you and you are fitting into my prophetic plans whether you realize it or not. I don't know. That's an amazing thing to think that 
the Lord will do this because God's prophecies will take place just as he promised and we can't change them. We can't limit them. Neither can we enhance them by our action, inaction, or even unbelief. Boy, that's a good thing to know. We just need to be faithful. I was uh, kind of appalled when I saw the clip one time of Jesse Duplantis saying that God had told him that the reason Jesus had not come by now is because God's people had not given enough. And of course, as he says that, you know who he's talking about giving the money to. It's not Graceway. He was using that to drum up offerings for themselves. If you people would just give more money, the Lord would return. Really? Do you realize what he's saying? That the Lord Jesus kind of has this date of return that's, well, it's kind of fluid. It could happen now, it could happen then, it could happen in the future, and a lot of it's dependent upon what you do. Boy, talk about crass manipulation and twisting of Scripture. There's a day and an hour that is fixed. And there may be other buildings built, meaning temples, but God has promised to do something in this place. I look forward to going to Israel. We're planning on going at the end of April and standing on that place. Yeah, I may have the Mosque of Omar now, but that is the place that God is talking about here where he said Jesus will rule and reign one day. This is the place where he has promised to bring peace, and that's amazing. And it doesn't matter whether everybody's doing right, whether they're doing wrong, whether they believe or not. There are a lot of Jews who don't believe, that. well, a lot of them in Israel are atheists. And the Muslims, of course, don't believe any of this kind of thing. And yet God is going to do it. You know, that gives me some hope. Because I don't always believe, right? I don't always do everything I'm supposed to do. I don't always do it the way I'm supposed to do it. And I don't always do it when I'm supposed to do it. And neither do you. And this is the the comfort that we have in the midst of our grief over our sin, we can say, but God is sovereign. Now, I'd rather be right and I'd rather be doing the right thing and I'd rather be uh, in agreement with him. But even if I'm not, God's promises will still be true. He doesn't leave anybody else's eternal destiny or anything like that in your hands or in my hands. And I praise his name for that. So, how do you see your life? You ought to think about that. Because sometimes we're a whole lot more negative than we really ought to be. How about this? Are you a victim of circumstances? Well, if I had different parents, if I was born in a different country, if I had a different race, if only this hadn't happened, if only I had been raised here, if only somebody had done this, if only my grandparents hadn't squandered all of our money and invested it properly or something like that. Are you a victim of circumstances? Well, then that would mean that God is not really sovereign and he doesn't have you right where he wants you for uh, his plan. You're not a victim of circumstances, in other words. How about this? Is, Is your life, your service to God, and your abilities seemingly limited? You know, I could serve God a whole lot more if he would give me 
the opportunities that he gave Billy Graham. Is that true? Well, if it were, he would do it. So it must not be true. If uh, I had just won a Super Bowl championship for the NFL, man, could I ever be a witness for Christ? I remember one time hearing a preacher say, people said, oh, if I only had millions of dollars, I could do so much for the Lord's work. And he said, no, the truth is, you'd probably just become a bigger God-robbing thief. See, we uh, try to put everything off and say, if only, if only, if only, if only, if only, as if our lives were not really controlled by a sovereign God. The steps of the righteous are ordered of God. Do you believe that? Then it means you're right where you need to be. And if you're not, he can get you out of that. He's perfectly capable of that, isn't he? Here's another thing. Is it possible that in the plan of God, your life could be more significant than you imagine? Is it possible that in the plan of God, your life could be more important, more significant than you imagine? Okay. I'll close by reading a story here about a guy that was a nobody, just a nobody. Okay. Here it is. Anyone here familiar with an Ed Kimball? Did he lead a significant life? Well, maybe not as we measure things on earth, but in heaven, incredibly significant. He was a Sunday school teacher who in 1858 led a Boston shoe clerk to give his life to Christ. The clerk, Dwight L. Moody, became an evangelist. In England in 1879, he awakened evangelistic zeal in the heart of Frederick B. Meyer, pastor of a small church. F. B. Meyer, preaching to an American college campus, brought to Christ a student named J. Wilbur Chapman. Chapman engaged in YMCA work, back when YMCA was actually Christian, and employed a former baseball player named Billy Sunday to do evangelistic work. Now, Billy Sunday held a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a group of local men were so enthusiastic afterward that they planned another evangelistic campaign, bringing Mordecai Ham to town to preach. During Ham's revival, a young man named Billy Graham heard the gospel and yielded his life to Christ. What's the point of that? Ed Kimball just a nobody Sunday school teacher. And yet look what he did. He led a shoe clerk to Jesus Christ. And that's all in the chain of events for the massive ministry in the gospel that Billy Graham had and that his son Franklin continues to this day. Now, where is the significant life in that? Oh, Dwight L. Moody shook two continents for Christ. Billy Graham, look at all the crusades he did. Well, don't leave out the people that are in between and where it all started. A guy named Kimball that other than this, you probably never heard of, whose life fit in the chain for God to do some great things. And the same is true for you and me, just as it was for these insignificant nobodies in Palestine that were the uh, remnant that returned from the Babylonian exile. Don't ever count God out because it's not really about you. 
It's all about Him, and He can do anything, and little is much when God is in it because His value system is different than ours. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, listen to this or watch this as the case may be. And I appreciate you doing that. May the Lord bless you. And we will look forward to seeing you next week.